How many of you guys are already done shopping for Christmas? I just want to see who to hate. Raise your hand if you're done shopping for Christmas. Who, who has started but is not done? You see that? And then who has not started? Raise your hand. These my people. All right. I see you. Love you with all my heart. I love you. I get you. You get me. Uh, what's the worst gift you've ever been given? Uh, how, many, how many of you did? That, that'd be a bad one. He said, I didn't get nothing. You need to be nicer to your mom and dad. Not when it happened. Um, worst gift you ever got what was, it doesn't have to be for Christmas, it could be for birthday, but what's the worst gift you ever got? I was asking that question to Greg Lewis. Greg Lewis uh, is our video guy, uh, video and graphics, and he used to be our worship director here in Avon before we uh, went to multiple locations. Uh, then he went out to Montana and was a worship leader at a, like, this gigantic mega church in Montana and recorded albums and worship albums and all that kind of stuff, so he's like super musically gifted. Um, and I asked him, and he said, honestly, my mom and dad, he goes, they didn't go crazy at Christmas or anything. Like, I, like they didn't spoil us, but they got us thoughtful gifts. He goes, oh, I remember when I was, t- when I, was I think he said 12 or 7th grade, something like that. It's about, that's the same age. But when he was in middle school, he asked his mom for an acoustic guitar. And like, he's a phenom- he plays guitar, he plays bass, he plays keys, drums. He's, he's uh, really, really gifted. And so he bought the, uh, hey, he bought, um, uh, excuse me, he asked for this acoustic guitar. And the guitar that his mom bought him for Christmas is one of those decorative guitars that you get at like a Christmas tree shop. You know, you put it on the wall behind the couch in between two family photos. You guys seem like, it's like, it's acoustic guitar, but it's a fake guitar. Anybody see, right? It's like, little, that's, that's what he got. That wasn't the worst. For sure, it wasn't the worst. Uh, because Tyler, our sound and lighting guy, was in the room when he heard me ask Greg. And he goes, uh, I got a, uh, uh, his name is Tyler. And he said, I got a uh, Barbie backpack. And I was like, what? Like, why don't your mom and dad love you? It's like, and so third grade was horrible for him. I asked him, I said, you didn't wear that outside, did you? And he goes, no, but it was, I was 15. So <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> like your mom, dad, hate you. Oh my gosh. That's probably, that's probably the worst one I've, I've heard. Uh, my wife's was pretty bad back in the early 80s, like 82 or whatever. She's going into middle school. And uh, back in the 80s, everybody wanted a boom box. So like even now when you do like an 80s theme party, somebody shows up with a boom box because that's kind of like the 80s vibe, right? Had like 20D batteries. So that was like, <laughs> like you spent as much money on batteries as you did the boom box. But like the rappers had them, but then like the break, the break dancers, you know, with the card and all the videos, they all had them. And so apparently my wife wanted to be a rapper. So <laughs> she asked for a boom box. And uh, uh, so Christmas comes, and all the presents are open except for her Santa gift, right? And it's boombox-sized, and she's incredibly excited about this. And uh, she, she opened it up with great anticipation, only to find that it was a sewing kit, <laughs> right? So I could have married a rapper, <laughs> but I ended up with a woman who can sew a button on less than 60 seconds, so that's not bad, right? Uh, but not the worst gift I've ever heard. The worst gift I ever heard getting a kid uh, for Christmas is embalming fluid. And it's in the Christmas story. Boom, I got you. It is, it is. I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. 
When they, the wise men, saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house. Remember, Jesus was born in a manger, but by the time the wise men got there, Joseph had made his wife a little bit happier and found them a house uh, and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. Uh, then they opened their treasure chests and gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I'm good with gold. Gold is great. How many of you guys would love to get gold for Christmas? Anybody want a gold bar? Anybody? Right? Like that would be, that would be, um, that would be amazing. That would be ab- absolutely amazing. Um, that, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. Uh, and frankincense, we're, we're like, okay, you know, I'd have preferred more gold, but a frankincense, like it's, that's, like, that's like the bougie perfume. It's like super, super expensive. Uh, myrrh isn't even that, what was, I mean, it was expensive. It was imported from, I think it was imported from India, if, if I'm correct. Um, I could be wrong in that. I can't, I can't remember. It's not even in my notes, but it wasn't something that grew right there in Judea. So it was something that was imported. So it was expensive. I mean, it wasn't like the cheap stuff that you get at CVS, not that kind of stuff, but it was, it was more expensive. You could have gotten it at the mall. You didn't have to order it for some bougie place in Paris. Like, it, right? like that's the kind of ointment that it, that it, that it was. Um, but it was primarily used by Jewish people in um, preparing a dead bodies for burial uh, because you would an, anoint the dead body with this oil of myrrh and it would act as a, like a, a it, it would cover the, the, the smell of, of rotten flesh is, is what it was for. And so the Egyptians used it for embalming back thousands of years. And, uh, and it wasn't a random gift. Like those of us who are dads who are responsible, or any other dads responsible for this, I need to be careful. Has anybody ever, dads, I'm speaking in code here, have you guys ever had to go to CVS really late on Christmas Eve because you forgot the one small job that we have? Anybody else? And they ain't got nothing there, right? But anyway, sorry, too much code, or there's only two dads that do that, but... um, (laughs) Sometimes, like when you're rushing out the door, like we, our, our church staff Christmas party is on Tuesday night. My wife's been prepared for a long time. She's bought it online and everything. And she's like, have you ordered yet? And I'm like, no, but I'll, I'll get something good. Uh, it's Tuesday. And so I'm going to look for something that Prime can deliver in a day. That's, what, that's, that's all I got. I'm just down to the last thing. But the Persians, the, the, the Magi, uh, we, everybody... Most scholars think they came from Persia, and that makes sense, especially when you consider the history and their connection to Israel, uh, because the Persians, uh, Daniel was a Persian prince, uh, Daniel from Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, he was Jewish, but he was, he was kidnapped by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and he found favor in bo- under both empires. And uh, everything that Daniel and the rest of the Jews would have brought with them, the Persians would have had uh, access to. And because uh, the, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, said there is no God but the Jewish God, and then Darius, uh, the, the Mede, and then, and then uh, uh, the, the Persian, uh, Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, also said there is no other God uh, but the God of, of Daniel. They would have valued everything that came religiously from Jerusalem. And when the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar sacked uh, Jerusalem, the Bible says they cleaned the temple out of everything of value, which would have included all of the scrolls. So everything 
that was written before the time of Daniel, all of the Babylonians and all of the Persians would have had access had access to. And they were waiting for 400 years for the Messiah to show up because they knew it, all the stuff that Daniel had written about him uh, and all of the other Jewish prophets. So they're waiting for the Savior of mankind just like the Jewish people were waiting for the Savior of mankind. So when they finally show up to see Jesus uh, at, at the house in Matthew chapter 2, everything about this has been planned for hundreds of years. They, they knew what they were bringing, and they brought myrrh on purpose, uh, but, but why? I mean, each one of the, the gifts that they brought had a prophetic value to it, like we talked last week about frankincense, and frankincense being the thing that was burned uh, as an incense uh, in the incense burner in front of the Ark of the Covenant perpetually in, in the presence of God. And it is a symbol of Jesus' role as the great high priest, the one that represents us to God the Father and the one who represents God the Father uh, to, what, to us. The one who intercedes on our behalf with God uh, is, is what the frankincense is. But what is, what, what is myrrh? What's the, what's the picture of, of myrrh? Now, the first time it's mentioned is with uh, Joseph. Uh, he's really famous because of the Technicolor dream coat, right? Uh, the play on Broadway. Um, but Joseph was a real dude, and he really did have a coat of many colors. He was the firstborn son of his dad's favorite wife. And there's a whole lot of awkwardness in there. Uh, I have a favorite wife. <laughs> I have one wife, but she is my favorite. There you go. Uh, there's, it, you know, he had a lot of wives, and he's not even Mormon, uh, is Jacob. So, uh, but Jacob had 10 sons before Joseph was born, but Joseph, the firstborn of his favorite wife. So he got special treatment. The older 10 brothers hated him. So uh, Joseph was sent to check on his brothers. They hated that too, uh, because he was the narc. And uh, so the older brother was away when G Joseph catches up to them, and they, they, they beat him up, and they throw him into a dry well. And uh, they're going to kill him. They're just trying to decide who's going to do it, because to to murder a family member with your hands is a dirty deed. Nobody really wants to do that, so they're kind of discussing how are we going to kill him. When the older brother comes back and he goes, bro, I thought we were just joking. Like, I know we all hate him, but you can't actually kill him. Like, this is insane. You can't kill him. I said, well, what are we going to do? And as they were discussing what to do with him, I mean, now they can't just, like, let him out because he for sure will tattletale on them. Like, that's why he was sent in the first place. Like the worst thing that he could have gone back and said is, dad, they're lazy, right? But now it's like, dad, they tried to kill me. It's completely different now. So they, they like, they got a, what are they? So there's a Midianite, there's a group of Midianite traders on their way to Egypt to sell myrrh. And if you, if you read the book of Genesis, you find out the Midianites are actually distant cousins of the Jewish people. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, so the, the Egyptians used myrrh for embalming. There's nothing in the Torah that says you have to use myrrh for embalming. And, and uh, so we think they picked up that practice from the 400, I think it was like 480 years that they were in Egypt and ended up as slaves in Egypt. You guys are all familiar with that story probably if you watch the DreamWorks picture, Prince of Egypt. But, um, but then they just kept doing that uh, all the way into the time of Jesus. Uh, the, it's also mentioned in Exodus chapter 30, and this is how uh, the, the Torah does say you should use myrrh, and it is to, uh, you use it as part of the sanctification process or an anointing process. Uh, 
for everything in the tabernacle that has anything to do with the atonement for mankind's sins. So the most important part of the tabernacle, which is making offerings and sacrifices to God for the sins of mankind, everything was made holy by myrrh. We're going to read that in just a minute. It's also mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Uh, If you open up your Bible to the middle, you'll get to Psalms. If you start flipping towards the back, it'll go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon is the next one. And Song of Solomon reads like a very risque two-person play uh, that you would see off-Broadway, and they would check IDs at the door. Uh, There's only two characters, and it's graphic. Uh, I was told when I was a kid uh, that that Song of Solomon was not for me. So naturally, it was the first book of the Bible I read all the way through. (laughs) It's the Bible. I can't get in trouble. I just want to read God's Word. Um, And every time... That and it's you know he refers you don't find out till halfway through the book that that the lady he's referring to is his wife because they just refer to each other as my lover. It's so awkward. It's so awkward. And then I saw my lover, and then he's all yeah, and you are my. It's like a yeah. And then it describes, like I'm reading it as a kid, and she's got a tower, her neck is like a tower of Lebanon, and her teeth are like newly shorn goats. And I'm like, this chick does not sound hot at all. Like, I don't know why you look like, this is nuts, man. Dude, you're a king. Upgrade, right? Like, sorry, that was inappropriate, just the upgrade part. But the rest of it's biblical. It's been the Bible. But every time it was business time, they anoint themselves with myrrh as a sacrifice to the other person. And oh my gosh, it is so cringy. Don't read it out loud. (laughs) Or do, on the train. (laughs) Tomorrow, do it, I dare you. Out loud, do it. Uh, And it's mentioned again as an anesthetic. Uh, Jesus is on the cross and one of the Romans actually has pity uh, because they normally tie the arms, but they've done a whole lot more to him than they did to the other two guys. Uh, the Bible says he was beaten so badly, you couldn't tell he was a man. I don't know if that means you couldn't tell what gender he was, or you couldn't tell what species. Uh, but that's how, and then he wasn't dying, man. Like it was, it was excruciating to watch. I'm, it's like if a, if a Roman soldier who's trained in the art of torture has compassion on you, you're not doing so hot. And so he takes a sponge he, he dips it, it's soaked with myrrh, and he dips it in vinegar and puts it on his spear and gives it and tells Jesus to drink it so it would dull the pain. And Jesus also knew that it would dull the senses, so he refused it. But the gift of myrrh was not an accident. Neither was frankincense, neither was gold. So I learned three things about Jesus from the gift of myrrh that we're going to be looking at with the rest of our time together. And the first is that myrrh connected Jesus to the sacrificial system and the tabernacle. That's the first thing. Like they were drawing a straight line between the birth of Jesus and the sacrifices in the temple. They're drawing a straight line to that. So this like, if you ever opened up a gift and it wasn't what you were expecting, but you had to be grateful? My wife and I were given a gift uh, by a couple in our church uh, years ago. And they had brought friends 
to watch us open up this gift. That's high risk. That's high risk. But it'd be an awesome gift, or you better hope I'm a good actor. Right? So we open up the gift, and while it was phenomenally thoughtful, it was something that they probably would have wanted for themselves. Right? Like, that's what you think. I, oh, I would like this. Let me get that for them. And it took a whole lot of... It, was just, it just didn't fit our vibe. But because the family was there and friends, I was like, oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. You ever had to do that to a gift? Anybody? Right? Like when you open up your... If you have kids in elementary school and you let them shop at the holiday store at the elementary school, I just want to say that's your fault. You don't want to take them to Target because you were lazy. You gave them 20 bucks for the store, and that's why you got them stupid screwdrivers again. Um, right? Anybody ever get... Any dads ever get the screwdrivers from the holiday store? Yeah. Know where those are at? Nope. Have no idea either. Um, anyway, so when Mary opens up the gold, that would have been awesome. Right? That spins everywhere. Scholars think that they probably lived off of that for the next two years when they were in hiding in Egypt when Herod went after all of the kid, little boys born uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, frankincense? Uh, not as valuable as gold for sure, but it's like the bougiest of all the perfumes. Like that's a really extravagant gift. Thank you for that. But then when they opened up myrrh, that would have brought the whole, like that would have brought the whole vibe down uh, because you're reminding a new mom that her baby is actually here to die. Like that, that it just, it's dark. It's very somber, is what it is. Like, you don't like sing and dance after this one. Like, the room would have gotten a little bit quiet. And she, as a Jewish lady, and with her husband, um, Jesus' stepdad, like, Jews knew what Jews did with myrrh. And it's to prepare a body not to stink when it dies. And so... Yeah, that's, that's the gift. And here's why I say they were drawing a straight line from the birth of Jesus to the sacrifice for sin is because where myrrh is mentioned in the Torah. Exodus chapter 30 is where we're at. Exodus 30 verse 22 says, uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, and also get a gallon of olive oil uh, to mix it all up. Uh, like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil. So that's what this is. It's like once this is mixed, God says this is now holy, and it's for the purpose of anointing. Uh, anointing for what purpose is where we're going with this. Um, he says, use the, this is the verse 26, use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, well, that's where the sacrifices are made. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, that was where the sacrifice was placed. So on, on top of, of the Ark of the Covenant is what they referred to as the mercy seat. The reason why they called it the mercy seat is because while Jewish people every single year would have to make sacrifices, actually, every time they sinned, I mean, it created a debt before God that needed to be paid for with life because when we with your life, because when we walk away from the creator of life, it makes sense that the consequence of that would be death. So 
death is the price that's owed uh, for, for sin because it's a rejection of the creator of life. And the Jewish people knew that. They accepted that. They embraced it. It's just true. There is a God. He is the creator of life. And every one of us, like sheep, have wandered away from him and gone our own paths. We've all disobeyed God. We've been selfish towards our fellow man. And we've transgressed our own conscience. Like, you don't even have to be religious. And you've done stuff that you knew made you feel like a piece of dirt. Right? You don't, you don't even need religion to acknowledge that there's sin in you. Well, what do we do with that? Because if there is a God, that has to be dealt with. So if you spend the rest of this life with sin that has not been paid for, you are now required to pay for that by spending eternity separated from the creator of life. So God out of love said, but I will let you make an offering of the life of something else that's innocent. Not a human, because that, that was evil. They were also creating the image of God. By the way, side note, a lot of people have a problem with the God of the Old Testament telling the Jews to go into the promised land and wiping out everybody. But what they forget is the chapter before, God told them why they were supposed to do that. That's because they were raping family members, committing incest, murdering, and offering their babies alive and burning fires of sacrifice before demon gods. Okay. I think there are some things <laughs> that you, woo, right? So God says they've had chances, they're not repenting. You are my strong arm of the law. You will enact vengeance so that the rest of the world will know that that is not acceptable. So the Jews, any time the Jews started doing the stuff that they did, that's when God would allow them to be conquered also. So God was fair in all of that because sin is evil. Murder is evil. All the other stuff, it's evil. And then my sin and selfishness. It's rebellion against the same person. But it's just a lamb. A lamb is not worth a human's life. So the lamb, you'd have to get a new lamb and a new lamb and a new lamb. Every time I sin, I have a new lamb, a new lamb, a new lamb, a new lamb. Because bulls, goats, lambs, sheep, and people. So it's not, it's not the same thing. Blood for blood, life for life, that's not life for life. So it was, it was, it was repeated. But... At the Ark of the Covenant, once a year, symbolically, they'd find the best, cleanest, most perfect lamb in the entire country, and that was the one that was chosen. So everybody was responsible to make sacrifices for their own sins. The priest would have to do it every single day. The high priest had to do it every single day so that once a year he could come into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And what made the Ark of Covenant holy was the myrrh. And so when he put the offering on the Ark of the Covenant, he was commuting our sins by laying on the hands to this animal. And this was becoming holy because of where it sat, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And now I just got ahead of myself a little bit in the verses. Back at it. Uh, use the sacred oil, verse 26, to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, all of its utensils, the lampstand, all of its accessories, the incense altar where the, fra where the frankincense was even that was only holy because of the myrrh. Um, 
Verse 28, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and the wash basin and its stand, everything in the tabernacle became holy after it was anointed with this mixture of myrrh. Consecrate them, verse 29, to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. And this is the only thing I can think of in the entire Hebrew scriptures that would commute holiness to something else. It's the only thing. So once myrrh touched it, then anything that touched that, because it had been anointed with myrrh, this was now made holy. So when the priest would lay the, the, the offering on the Ark of the Covenant, he had to anoint it with myrrh first. The myrrh is what made it the sacrifice holy. Then he would place the lamb on top. Now the lamb is holy. Then he would put his hands on the lamb, and now he's so the sins were being commuted from this direction. Holiness was being commuted this direction. And all of that was happening because of myrrh. And that brings me to the second thing. So the first thing that I learned about Jesus from the gift of myrrh is that anybody that was in the room, once they opened up the gift of myrrh, would have known, oh my gosh, this goes all the way back to the sacrifices that we have to make in order to be made right with God. So it points them back to that system and it identified Jesus as the actual sacrifice. No one gives embalming fluid to a baby and it doesn't make sense. And how are these Persians? How are they even aware that the Messiah, whenever he shows up, was going to actually become the sacrifice for sin anyway. Like, where did they get that information? They weren't raised in Hebrew school. They're not Hebrews, right? They're, they're from Persia, the Magi, the wise men. So how do, they, how do they know about this? Now, if they were looking for Jesus, as most theological scholars would all agree, it makes the most sense, because they're from Persia where Daniel was a prince and when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of the other Jews and the rest of the entire temple was cleaned out of everything of value and the gold and the silver and the bronze basins and, and all of the instruments for worship and all of the scrolls, then once the king of Babylon, the king of the Medes, and the king of the Persians all acknowledged the God of the Jews as the one true God, that their scriptures would have been very highly valued and honored. And since that all happened in 550 BC, we know that the, any, any writings of the Hebrew scriptures from before 550 would have come, come to Persia with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the rest of the, the Jewish slaves. Isaiah was written in 700 BC. So the scroll of Isaiah was already 150 years old by the time Daniel is kidnapped and made a slave and then rises through the ranks and becomes a prince, the prime minister of all of Babylon, then the Medes, and then the Persians. And they would have had these scriptures. So they've had this for 550 years. So they would have read it. So this is how I think the Persians, the wise men, knew that Jesus was going to be the sacrifice. If you've got your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 53. They had this scroll. And here's what Isaiah chapter 53 says 
about the one that Daniel had said a star was going to point out. Isaiah chapter 53, verse one. Who has believed our message, he asked rhetorically. To whom has the Lord revealed this powerful, his powerful arm? And the answer to the question is anybody who's about to read what I'm about to write. So who, who believes this and who gets to hear it? Well, those who keep reading. That's us, verse two. And, and here's, the, the Jews had a, uh, their, their, uh, their linguistic style often was to write in the past, the present, and the future at the same time. Because we see, we think of time linearly, like start uh, to finish. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, the, the ancient Middle East and Far East view time differently. They view it as a spiral. Everything that happens, happens again, right? Everything that happens, happens again. So that's why when we find out about something in the Bible, but that some place was mentioned earlier in the Bible, we always go look at it because often they're used in, this, in the same way. So that's their style of writing. So he'll write about something as though it had already happened to communicate the confidence that this is going to happen. So even Jewish scholars will say that Psalm 50, or excuse me, Isaiah 53 is talking about the future Messiah. So this chapter is often referred to as the suffering Messiah. Like it's the chapter to our Jewish friends that doesn't make sense to them. Because all of the other verses talk about the Messiah reigning on the throne of his father David forever. But then what do you do with Isaiah 53? Because this doesn't sound like a reign. So it's like the one chapter that doesn't make sense to them. I mean, it makes sense to us because we know who the Messiah is. Uh, but here's what it says, verse two. Uh, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root and dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And I'm gonna stop right there. Was Jesus a good-looking man, yes or no? What does the Bible say? I'm gonna read it again. Some of you guys angry. I hate this church. You blaspheming my good-looking Jesus. There was nothing, verse two, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing that would physically attract us to him. So we've all seen the Renaissance picture of Jesus with the flowing light brown hair, blue eyes, pale skin, looking up like this. How many guys have seen the pretty Jesus? Grandma got it in her kitchen, right? Living room, somewhere like that, right? Jesus is never in a bathroom, which is a good thing. But we put that, the smiling pretty Jesus up there. Jesus was not a pretty man. According to the Bible, there'd be nothing about his physical appearance that would attract a crowd. So in my head, I want to tell you, he doesn't look like, but then I'd be telling you who I think is a pretty man. Now my ADD is making me tell you anyway. So Michael B. Jordan, anybody? Right? Denzel for the older ladies. Right? Jason Momoa, anyone? Brad Pitt, huh? I ain't even gay, but I can still say those guys are good looking. All of them better looking than Jesus. Jesus, you'd see at Walmart and go, yep. <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with Walmart. We shop at Walmart, right? Actually, we came up in a world. It's Target for us now, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right, but I'm just saying, he's just a regular looking dude. That's what the Bible says, regular looking dude. Back at it. Sorry, all right, a little commercial break. We're gonna get back to some heavy stuff. 
Uh, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Remember, the Persians have been reading this for 400 years. So when they leave to go meet the Messiah, they're going to bring what they know he needs. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because each one is a prophetic picture about who he is and why he came. And they know that, even if Mary and Joseph aren't convinced yet. Okay, he was despised, we did not care, verse four. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. It's crazy that this is written hundreds of years before the Romans invented crucifixion. But Isaiah talks about how he would die. He was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, hang on. I lost it. Verse five. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We all have. We've left God's paths to follow our own. We all have. Yet the Lord laid on Jesus the sin of us doing that. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was unjustly condemned. He was led away. And no one cared that he died without descendants. So they knew he was going to suffer and die. That his life was cut short in midstream. And we know that that was at age 33. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. He's the spotless lamb that's offered on the Ark of the Covenant. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Here's what's crazy. Isaiah's writing this, and he knows this, that God is somehow confirming in his heart that this is what must be written. He doesn't know the name of the rich man, but we do. We're going to read his story in a minute. Like, there's so much that he didn't know that we know. Like, he knew that to us a child would be born, a son would be given, and the government would be upon his shoulders, and his name would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So he knew that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would be God who shows up in the flesh as a baby boy. He didn't know his name. We do. His name is Yeshua. Now, we say it in English, Jesus, like Pablo and Paul. Juan and John, right? Yeshua is his name. and he, Same name as Joshua, the one who followed Moses. Jesus and Joshua are the same name, and it means God saves. That's what, that's what the name means. So Yeshua, it's, it's not, a, it's other Jewish kids had the name Yeshua. Isn't this Yeshua, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Isn't this Yeshua? This, they didn't go, isn't this Yeshua? Like it was a name that, it's not like, isn't this Oprah? There's only one Oprah. Isn't this Bono? Isn't this Cher? Right? I mean, I'm trying to think of all. I want to say Eminem, but I was like, he shouldn't be in a sermon. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't say his name. Uh, but his name is, but what the cool thing is, is like we get, so Isaiah probably had all these questions about what he was writing. Like I gotta write this because what God's telling me to write, but oh, like he died not knowing what the Messiah's, what the baby who'd be born, who'd be called the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of, we know his name, it's crazy. And he wrote about the rich man's grave. 
He probably had his own, like, it's crazy. It was like the rich man a friend? Was it a stranger? Like, we know, we know the answers to those questions. We're going to get to them in a minute. Um, he had done no wrong, never deceived anyone, verse 9, but he was buried like a criminal and was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he'll have many descendants. I'm one of his spiritual descendants because of what he did. He will enjoy a long life. All right, so how does he die at 33 but still have a long life? That's one of many hints in the Hebrew scriptures that the Messiah would die and then raise from the dead. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 10 is another one. Psalm 22 is the crucifixion chapter. David describes crucifixion perfectly like 800 years, 1,000 years before it was invented. It's crazy. And Psalm 16 said that God would not allow the Holy One to rot in the grave. That he would be in the grave, but he wouldn't be in the grave long enough to rot. And then this one said that his life would be cut short, but that he would have a long life, which doesn't make sense until you look at the life of Jesus. When he sees all that is accomplished by his, his grief, verse 11 uh, he'll be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. That's the, uh, he takes on the sins, but then he gives us the righteous. That's the commuting of the sins to the sacrifice and the holiness because of the myrrh from the sacrifice to us. Um, verse 12, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death and he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for those who actually were rebels, that's us. So the Magi, when they show up, they show up with what he needed, myrrh. But did he actually need it? And that's in John 19. John 19 says in verse 38, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who'd been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the other Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. Because Jesus was crucified at 12, he died at 3, sundown starts the Sabbath. They weren't going to have the time to do anything, and the Romans were content to leave his body as an example up on the cross to be picked at by birds all weekend long until the Jews after Sabbath could get his body. But Joseph of Arimathea, being of the Jewish high council, had an arrangement with the Romans. Can we pretend like we're still in charge as long as we do everything you say? And the Romans said, sure, as long as you guys... Help us with the tax stuff. So there was an arrangement. So he took advantage of the privilege he had of being a high council member. Mary couldn't walk into Pilate's office. None of the disciples, they were just regular Joes. None of them were from the privileged class either. But Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the high council, but secretly because he, he believed in Jesus, he just didn't want his faith in Jesus to cost him anything. Which I think might describe a lot of Christians. Like I'm cool with the God stuff. As I just need to manage it. I don't want too much religion. So he would have been a part of all of those meetings where Jesus was the mock trial and the torture. Like he, he watched all of that and didn't speak up. I can't even imagine that. Well, he... In my opinion, too little too late is going to stand up for his belief in Jesus now. And he asks a personal favor of Pilate. Can you please let me get his body? Don't leave it up. So Pilate gives permission. Uh, when Pilate gave permission at the end of verse 38, Joseph came and took the body away. 
With him came Nicodemus. Nicodemus is famous from John chapter 3. What must I do to be saved? Well, you must be, you must be born again. What does this mean? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb and come out again? And Jesus goes, you're a sarcastic jerk. We're done. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Read it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Nicodemus was also a follower of Jesus, but secretly also, I don't even know if they knew about each other. So you got two people on the high council who are actually followers of Jesus, but neither one's saying anything because they're both cowards. They want God. They just don't want God to cost them anything. Nicodemus, though, has a change of heart. Again, Johnny come lately. The man who'd come to Jesus at night, he brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jesus' the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. You only needed 12 pounds for the whole tabernacle. And he comes with 75. Homeboy's trying to compensate for his guilty conscience. You know what I mean? But that's what it was for. And the third thing, so number one, it points him to the sacrificial system. Number two, it identifies him as the actual sacrifice. And number three, it alludes to Jesus' sacrifice freeing us from sin and its power because of what the sacrifice did in the temple. 1 Peter chapter 2 says he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. He did that when we, by faith, commute our guilt to Jesus. In his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Does that sound familiar? Once you were like sheep who wandered away. Does that sound familiar? But now you've turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. And now because Jesus took my sins... Through faith, Jesus, take away my sins. Forgive me and save me from them. He takes them. They have no more authority over me that I don't give them. Now, before you're a follower of Jesus, you can make the case. You've got no choice but to be a sinner. I do this. My dad did this. I didn't know any better. But once you turn from sin, it doesn't own you anymore. Romans 6 says that. Verse 6, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in my life. We are no longer slaves to that crap. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin and whom the Son sets free is... There you go. So by faith, I accept that Jesus did, for the, me, did this for me personally. And in the same way that he laid down his life for me, I get to lay down my life for him. And that's the offering that he sees as holy. All of this is pictured in myrrh. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So every time you feel yourself being tempted to go back to your sin, it is an offering for you to lay that sin like a sacrificial lamb on the altar and say, God, this belongs to you. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm done with this. And every time I get to take my sin and I get to put it on Jesus, I get to put it on Jesus, I get to put it on Jesus. And that doesn't make me want to do it more. It makes me want to do it less. Though the, through the Magi's gift of myrrh, we know that they connected him to the Old Testament sacrificial system and to the sacrifice itself. And though Jesus is completely innocent, he was prophesied 700 years earlier by Isaiah to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins in order to bring us healing, restoration from God and to be counted as holy even though we know we're not. 
And the good news is that Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross sets me free from the slavery that I've always had to sin. It cleanses my conscience through his blood and empowers me to walk in a new life and godly character through his spirit. So what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to accept his death as the payment for your sin. Everybody has to pay for their sin. Everybody who's ever lived. Everybody from any religion. But there's only one person who doesn't have any personal sin to pay for. It's not Moses. It's not Muhammad. There's only one person who ever lived this life, according to their own scriptures, without sin. So there's only one person who qualifies to be laid down on the Ark of the Covenant. That's Jesus. You either accept his payment for your sins or you stand before God acknowledging that you were too what to accept his son? Too proud? Too what? Like it's the only sin that can't be forgiven. Is you rejecting his sacrifice? What's the consequence of that? Exactly what we deserve. And I won't disrespect him. I'm not going to ignore that. So I'm, I'm asking you not to either. Accept that what Jesus did was for you. Ask him to forgive you for all of the stuff that he's paid for and then thank him for forgiving you. And then commit to him your willingness to live your life as a living sacrifice for him because he laid down his life as a sacrifice for you. That's the only reasonable response. And all of that is pictured with myrrh. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and make your own prayer to God. If you would admit that you've sinned against God, you've been selfish towards your fellow man, you've transgressed your own conscience, then admit that to God, not me. God, I have sinned against you, against others, against myself. And I know you are holy and clean and and I know sins must be paid for. And I don't want to pay for them. I would never ask you, Jesus, to do this for me, but since you did it, I will not disrespect what you've done. Please take my sins too. Make that your prayer. Take my sins too. Forgive me. Clean my heart. Clean my conscience. Give me freedom from this sin that keeps kicking my butt. Set me free from that. In every day, like Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Let me crucify that every day. Let me offer that to you so that I don't live in that any longer. Every time I choose to do what is right instead of what I know is wrong, God, please receive this as an offering. Make me holy, God, please, like you are holy. Make me loving like you are loving. Make me kind like you are kind. Compassionate like you're compassionate. Forgiving like you're forgiving. God, do anything you want in my life. I am your man. I am your girl. Make that your prayer. God, please receive our prayers out of sincere hearts and do in our lives everything you want and everything you planned. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen.